Hey folks, uh, thank you very much for tuning in again. Um, this is another begging for money situation. Um, well, I'd like to start off by thanking Gareth Hughes for slinging some cash our way. And advice. And, adv- and advice, advice, yeah, and, and, and some web-related advice, which uh, we will no doubt take up on at some point and, and hopefully not the not do this in the future, but obviously it depends on how much money we raise through Patreon. So if you haven't already, you can go to patreon.com forward slash unsungpod and you can uh, see what you can get for your money it starts from as low as two dollars and you can see some of the goals some of the things we want to do and most importantly you get access to bonus content and you'll continue to get your episodes on Friday because we now do it on a Monday uh, and just thanks to everybody that keeps Patreoning yeah all your patrons are great can you verb Patreon I don't know but yeah, uh, anything's grateful appreciated. We have some goals. We've, we've already enabled a couple of them. Uh, and hopefully we can continue to do that. And I think our next goal is like a new website and some rebranding and all that, which I'd really love to do. So, yeah. It'd be ideal. Thank you very much. Okay, let's talk about some miserable music. Hello, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. How are we this week, gentlemen? Just want to suggest something. Given mm. the subject matter of this week's podcast, mm. we should all say the exact same words at the exact same times and at least double track, if not multi-track, <laughs> every single spoken <laughs> word. <laughs> Hello, welcome, welcome to, to the Unsung Podcast. <laughs> I am your host, Mark, Mark Fraser. Fraser. Don't do that anymore. <laughs> Yeah, Molly tracking, man, that's the thing he does quite a lot of, eh, mm. on his vocals. Yep. We'll talk about that, though. Let's talk about you guys first. Mm-hmm. How are you, Christopher? I'm feeling suitably multi-tracked. Yeah. Pretty robust. <laughs> it's covering up for my many flaws Yep. in life. Especially when your voice is that thin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. Been to see any culture lately? I have. I'm a regular consumer of culture, David. I, I know this. I'm stolen. So I can think of an answer. (laughs) I went, yes, I went to see some uh, dance, some modern dance. Modern dance. Yep. Expressionistic. Performers uh, doing six hours, six minutes and six seconds of dance. Was it evil? It was. Nice. And shortly after that, uh, I went to a couple of shows. I went to see an experimental noise show, which was really good. Featured one Glasgow electronic artist called Cleft. Vicky McDonald, she's very good. And I, the following night, I went to see a kind of psychedelic stonery band of miscreants called the Cosmic Dead, who are one of our hairiest exports. And they were just back from a European tour, and they were suitably psychedelic, and the gig was very good. Nice. Got lost in a wee fog of drop D, drop C, whatever, drop something. A drop tuning of some kind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there was more things dropped in that room than just the tuning as well, I'll be <laughs> honest. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I had, I had a fair amount of music this week. And nice managed one. to avoid seriously hurting myself. Yay! Mm-hmm. That's always a victory when that happens. Yeah, you've been doing a lot of injuries to yourself lately. I did hurt myself, just not seriously. Okay, yeah. what did you do? I just landed funny. Oh. Got a sore foot. But it's cool. Just an excuse to... Relax. Let you guys set up all the microphones while I sit about. <laughs> Classic Cusack. David, you're not well. Yeah, no, I just can't shake this cold and then got an iffy tummy and didn't get any sleep last night. But it set me up nice. It set me up nicely for the the music this week. Miserable, miserable music. I, I am patient, patient zero. zero. Oh no, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, outbreak, more like outbreak. <laughs> You're more like a monkey, <laughs> small, a small monkey being chased by Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I've not seen any culture this week. In fact, quite the opposite. I went to the pub in Allness. Uh, That's culture. Well, don't dismiss cult- it. Well, it's culture, like you know, something alive in a jar at the bottom <laughs> of a fridge. Is it one of those pubs where they keep all the lights on? <clears throat> the lights are quite high. Yeah, uh, they once again went in pretty hard on the uh, <laughs> Luis Capaldi. And the Jerry Cinnamon trans remix. Oh, there is one of those. Uh huh. Wow. So that was a joy. But no, I had a lovely time. I, I, I am now at the age where I went home, and it turns out that a lot of my school pals were all uh, back home on the same weekend. So we went out for a big lunch, and we had seven high chairs for children under one. But what about if babies came in? Where were they going to sit? Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, there were, I think there were 12 people at lunch under five years old. That's disgusting. Do they not know that the planet's in trouble? Exactly. No wanes. All nice yeah. is really, you know, got a carbon footprint much mm-hmm. larger than it. Yeah, I mean, the lights are so high and there's so many babies. It's probably the, the single biggest problem outside of China. But apart from that, I don't know it's time. <laughs> uh, how are you, Mark? Uh, I'm okay. Uh, I went to see Joe Carter on Saturday, which I, I enjoyed. And apart from that, I've mostly been packing because I'm moving house this weekend. So Packing heat? Packing heat. Yeah. Packing also, fudge? Not yet. <laughs> don't wait till I move in front of that. Uh, is that a Tango and Cash joke? What is it? Where is that? Uh, have I picked it up from? Tango and Cash has been heavily referenced during my week this week and it's really, yeah, I think it's kind of infiltrated my subconscious. Deliberately so. Have you seen it recently? Uh, a friend of mine watched it and he started talking about it and now I just can't shake it. <laughs> like, I was putting my belt on today and I felt like getting on a zipline. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, it's really in there. It's really got its claws in. You should get a dog. Some funny fucking things about that film, by the way. Some very strange trivia about it. It's an odd film. It is an odd film. The last film ever released in the 80s. No. Yeah. Really? Yeah, apparently. Interesting. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, it's mad. That's pretty mad. I watched it a lot when I was a kid, and really that's bad painting, because I was far too young to watch that film. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite I know, violent. but part of that, part of us, well, funnily enough, I, was at, I went to see Joker last night, and uh, there were parents there with a kid, and they got refused entry because he didn't have ID. Because he was under 50 I've never seen that happen He was clearly f- I've never seen that happen like, He was like 13 or something like that And they were like Oh do you have any ID for him And the mum was like No he's 15 But I mean <laughs> I don't think he was but Yeah so they had to Fuck off And not I just, Go see another film I just thought that was like a, You know A suggestion <laughs> I just Yeah a formality That nobody really goes with You know it's, yeah. I know they do um, No she was like, yeah. it's like Oh you're not allowed She's like the police The police do random checks And it's like Alcohol for us You know if They fucking don't When have you ever been In the cinema And the police have ID'd <laughs> right, people Right everybody Right Who's got your driving licenses out <laughs> Put your hands in the chair In front <laughs> What the fuck uh, Do you know what I actually I, I went to see the The uh, I went to see Joker last night and in a perfect piece of like four dimensional, you get these 4D seats now where they move mm, and everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Cineworld in Glasgow really went out there by having uh, two exceptionally drunk guys, three rows behind us, mm-hmm. uh, who kept shouting throughout the, throughout the film and just giving a, a 
real sense of danger to <laughs> the film, which is all about, you know, uh, social disintegration. And then just about halfway through when the film is really clicking into, you know, civil disobedience, uh, one of the guys fell over into another guy. <laughs> there was a small fight. Okay. Uh, this guy was like... <clears throat> Who's with this guy? Who's with, somebody take him out? Or I'm gonna fucking bat him. <laughs> and then, uh, and then they both staggered out. One of them fell down about you know five stairs. Wow. Uh, dropped a bottle of Buckfast. Uh, stewards had to come in. Uh, uh, all everybody apologised. And it really the, just did added you get a refund. A, nah. Do you know you can actually? I know. You, it totally could have. Desk and give them grief. You get a refund. I know. But it was like it just to me, it really added something to the film. It yeah. was like, oh, here is literally a sense of danger. Spoiler alert for those of you that haven't heard Joker. Skip thirty seconds forward. But you know, you could have just stood up and shot them all. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, you and set in motion a spate of civil disobedience that would have led to the overdue revolution. We've only got sixteen days, David. If you're going to do it, do it fucking <laughs> now. All right. <laughs> I was surprised when you were talking about the the women that got refused entry. She didn't just pull out a, a pair of scissors and start stabbing the guy there. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, she hadn't seen the film yet, so she wasn't. Her blood hadn't yet been boiled by. Uh, yeah. On that note. Yeah, let's talk about something just as depressing as Joker. Ellie Smith. Uh, yeah. So we're going to do figure eight this week. Yeah, also, strangely, on the album you've chosen is mm. Deliriously Happy mm. at points. Yeah. Unnervingly so. Uh, musically, yeah. <laughs> Lyrically, <laughs> not so much. He- heavily medicated, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Heavily, Borderline. Heavily medicated was uh, kind of his middle name <laughs> at some point in his career. Actually, no, Elliot was his middle name. <laughs> Actually, it was, yeah, right. Didn't want to get confused with the drummer. Stephen Smith. Didn't want to get confused with the drummer's journey, apparently. <laughs> As if that's going to happen. <laughs> Stephen Paul Elliott Smith could so easily have been renamed Tommy Robinson. Could have been. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you chose this, Mark. Yeah, because um, it's, it's been a while since we did something truly, truly depressing. Uh, mm-hmm. But we I, did Interpol last week. Yeah, no, I was, was Cult of Luna. Being we did Cult of Luna the week before. <laughs> have you been? I was being ironic. For fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I picked this record because I. Still kind of like it, but I was. I spoke about this a little bit in the end of last episode when, when when I said what I was going to do. Me and Chris were having a conversation about what records we're going to do, and that's when Chris picked Interpol. And one of the suggestions that he came up with was Alex Smith, particularly Figure Eight. And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking we kind of had the same, we kind of came to the same thought at yeah. the same time. Is like, I actually fucking used to really love Alex Smith, but. Whatever I listen to him now, I'm like, yeah, maybe just a song here or there is fine. There's not so, I mean, putting to to the side pop punk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it might not apply to everyone can. here, <laughs> but uh, there's not many things I've really loved that intensely. Uh, Green Day being the case, not pop punk generally, but like Elliot Smith I had a massive, massive period. Elliot Smith, like like two mm-hmm. years where I just fucking gorged on it. And I, I really kind of feel like I grew out of it. And yeah. That sounds maybe a wee bit condescending, I realise, but it does just feel like I grew out of it because going back to it now, it's almost, it feels like too basic. Uh, there's there's something, there's something just, not, it, it isn't challenging anymore in mm-hmm. any way. And I think 
not everything has to be challenging. There's lots of simplistic music I like from when I was younger, but for some reason Elliot Smith hasn't aged as well as a lot of other things. So yeah, when we were discussing it before we did the Interpol episode, that was my reservation, and then you just pulled the trigger on it, so fair play. Yeah. So I, luckily I'd already been thinking about it, so I had a few notes. Yeah, because one of the things that occurred to me when I was listening through his back catalogue is that his songwriting style never really evolves, but his compositional now kind of does. Mm. Which is quite, which is actually and the production, yeah, really the production, changed, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. which is actually really inter- actually really nice to see. Like if you listen through, like chronologically, it's actually really cool to see it. But as as with the more pro- the better the big production and, and and the bigger budget, the records become a lot more kind of bogged down with like filler as well, which we'll probably talk about. Um, oh, I, d- I don't know if I agree with that at all, actually, but well, um, I do agree with you on the point that he, but you know, Elliot Smith committed suicide in two thousand and three. He never possibly. Well, probably, probably, let's, yeah, yeah, probably is a better word. I it's think. still, it's still unsolved as a case, apparently. It's, it's still open, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the point being, he he didn't stick around long enough to do any steps backwards, maybe. And so, as you say, when you listen through his catalogue chronologically, you do get a sort of like, you know, uh, an unfaltering arc up. Words in terms of production and composition and arrangement. Yeah, know, not like, necessarily in quality, but he no, was pushing yeah. himself. Yeah, yeah, in terms and of like the number of instruments, the number of tracks, the quality of the recording, the clarity of the yeah. recording. And he never got to a stage in his career that we've seen with many artists where they go, oh shit, we better Back retry something that yeah. we've done. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and I think one thing I wanted to kind of state is that I don't think this is his best record. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is picked purely on the basis of I think it being his unsung record because this is the one he's kind of like he's mostly remembered for like either or and XO mm-hmm. and this one was his final record that well not his, I suppose the final record that he was in charge of should we say uh, and I think there's a lot of great moments on it and I think some of this, the best songs on it are amongst the best of his career mm-hmm. I would um, agree with that yeah but I would say that it's not perfect by any means and None of nothing he's ever done. Is nothing perfect. he's ever done is perfect. Um, and I think Elliot Smith is an artist that I consumed back when you used to burn CDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elliot Smith, I, I constantly had a compilation in the car of his tunes. So a bit like you know the Spotify equivalent now of a playlist. Mm-hmm. I would very very rarely listen to an Elliot Smith album. I would piece together a number of tracks from all across his discography and actually from outtakes and stuff as well that I thought, and so there's maybe about 15 to 20 tracks on these CDs that I'd keep in my car, but it never really went from in an album way, mm-hmm. and actually we've been talking about doing a mixtape, we've been kind of dropping me hints about it, about uh, a mixtape of artists that have no definitive album mm-hmm. he's close to that, I think you're right that this is an interesting one um, but yeah, there's Definitely a number of artists out there who've never had a definitive record yet have an incredible back catalogue of stuff. Um, and yeah, Elliot Smith for me was always best consumed bespoke. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't think he had a, a pure golden period. This is this is a very accomplished period though. Definitely. But also, yeah. holy shit, a very turbulent period for the guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think he ever had a non-turbulent period, but this in particular, yeah. Um, I mean... I'm sure you know the background as well, but Elliot Smith was born, as you say, Stephen Paul Elliot Smith. Uh, but <laughs> is it a drummer from Journey, you said? Yeah. Yeah, Steve, it's Steve, called Stephen Steve Smith. Smith but yeah. He said he felt that Steve Smith sounded like a jock and Stephen Smith sounded too bookish. <laughs> so he went for Elliot. Uh, he was born in Omaha, Nebraska, raised in Texas, which he apparently really didn't like, and then lived most of his life in Portland, Oregon, although I think he relocated to New York at one point as well. Mm. Um, 
he was previously in a band called Heat Miser, who actually did a lot of stuff there, about three albums, mm-hmm. a couple of EPs. Uh, and Your last he- record, MX City Sons, is pretty good as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he started going solo in 94 kind of at the suggestion of somebody close to girlfriend yeah who'd said send a demo off of some of these things you've been working on um he has there's some interesting stuff in his backstory i mean clearly elliot smith's a guy that had serious long-term mental health issues Mm -hmm. uh depression apparently adhd when he was younger um but also he he says he may have been sexually abused by his stepfather. The stepfather obviously denies this, but I know they had a very turbulent relationship anyway. His parents had separated when, I think, he was about six months old and moved to different parts of the country. Um, I mean, you look at patterns of trauma for people that have like severe mental health issues, a lot of the time it can be repression of... Of of abuse when they were younger. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not it's saying that's the same thorny, for everyone, but it's it's, it's a very thorny thing, though, to say yeah. you may have been sexually abused well, by a, somebody. A lot of people will take a, take a many many years to disclose that. You know that like it's it's a hard thing to come to terms with because a lot of the time you can blank out that kind of trauma as well. And I know I think it's more that I, I don't for a second dispute that. I just think it's more that unless you're absolutely sure, I don't know if that's something you should articulate mm. publicly. Yeah, I don't think he ever, did he ever, was it ever actually publicly publicly or was it just kind of like very publicly, yeah. So his dad, the, the, his stepfather, I don't know anything about his stepfather and he may well have done so or he may well not have done so but he had to publicly deny it. Uh, so it's, that's a difficult thing, Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I may have been sexually abused by this man, like fucking hell mate. Mm-hmm. That's, you're not messing about the allegations there. Um, so Elliot Smith struggled with depression, mental, other aspects of mental illness, uh, drug abuse. Um, he had a number of suicide attempts. A lot of his friends at various points in his life anecdotally kind of recount late night suicide watch with him, sitting up, stroking his head and his hands till like the early hours of the morning, talking him through, telling him why he's worthwhile. He apparently at one point, and this is stunning, I guess, and sort of does cast his death in a different light um, but at one point in North Carolina the, he, he ran, he got drunk really drunk and ran off a cliff like physically ran off a cliff landed in a tree luckily but was impaled on the tree um, so it saved his life but he was quite badly injured in it uh, so I mean this is this, this is a guy who had repeatedly either considered attempted or almost attempted suicide uh, and then you know the way he died uh, stabbed twice in the chest <clears throat> following a domestic argument mm-hmm. um, his girlfriend says she locked herself in the bathroom to take a shower she heard the scream she came out and he had a knife sticking out of his chest which she then pulled out of his chest um, and clearly the police were not entirely convinced about that uh, but the suggestion was that he put the knife on the counter and fallen onto it uh, the coroner apparently said there were no hesitation marks, which was very unusual with somebody who'd yeah, so done that. Mm-hmm. Because there's usually little marks as they're preparing to do yeah, it. It takes quite a. I mean, of all the kind of ways you can commit suicide, that takes the most amount. That takes like the most amount of uh, effort to, it's, to uh, do. Yeah, it's fucking intense twice as well. But um, in saying that, and again talking about casting aspersions on people, the case is open. But when you look at the guys 
patterns of behaviour through his mm-hmm. life as regards suicide attempts. Running off a cliff is not a typical suicide attempt. Yeah. You know, that's 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 spontaneous. That's very impulsive. Mm-hmm. And I think that has to be kind of factored in. So, you know, you can you can come to your own conclusions about that, I think. Um and probably carefully and tactfully so. Uh there are some really interesting pointers. So I know there was one point in his life his, his live performances became very sporadic and also very erratic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one show where he played less than half of the songs in the set all the way through. Played for quite a while, but he kept, he kept complaining of um, his left hand like going dead and it, it, quote, felt covered in stuff you can't get off, which he said from stage. And one of the reporters watching that show, this is in 2002, and one of the reporters predicted in the review of that show, I think this guy will be dead within a year. Because he's just so out there. He was, uh, I think Wayne Coyne, the guy from Flaming Lips, described him as well at one of the shows. Uh, he, th- he got into a physical fight with the Los Angeles Police Department uh, at, at some point, and Wayne Coyne described him when he was on drugs as not like Keith Richards, blissed out in a corner. You know, grumpy, irrational, unpredictable. Um, yeah, complicated guy, really difficult guy. Yet the music's so gentle and so. At times blissful, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, when you know the story, it contrasts all the more, but it's often quite cheery. Some of the, some of the tracks in this album are really cheery, mm-hmm. it, at least superficially so. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that the, he kind of perfected and well, sort of began doing in Heat Miser and then later did perfect throughout his career was yeah, sort of couching like these really depressing, really dark stories, presumably about himself, but you, know, you, can't, really, you can't really know for sure. And some of the most uplifting music, major keys, you know, like try to keep it, I don't know, light, even though he's dealing with, definitely dealing with some stuff, you know. Um, that's one of the reasons I was drawn to, so much to this record as opposed to Waltz, as opposed to Exto, or as opposed to. It's telling uh, that you made that uh, slip though. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, either or, because this is, uh, this is like him, uh, it feels like it's him at the peak of his powers, I think, from Basement on a Hill which we'll probably talk about in a second as well, is it's obviously incomplete, but it doesn't really feel as though it might have been going in, a, in the same direction as this, mm. you know. Um, how did, what was the first thing you heard by him? It was, it was that record, it was uh, XO. X, the one we walked out. That's X, wasn't it? Yeah. X was yeah. the one before this. It was his yeah, first yeah, one. That was, the, that was the first one I'd heard. Yeah. Yeah. So he signed to DreamWorks, which was a, uh, David Geffen and Steven Spielberg's label, mm-hmm. and did two albums yeah. uh, Figure Eight that we've chosen and XO. XO prior to that. And then before that was Either Or, which was sort of the, the cult indie favourite, really. Mm-hmm. What, what about you, Dave? What did you first hear by Elliot Smith? I don't know. I, he was never big. I think I maybe downloaded this record. Uh, when I was like 18 or 19 and it didn't quite stick to Too mild but for the new metal diehard that you yeah, were at that age. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I heard, the first one I heard which also was a really, really big song for him was the track Miss Misery. From the score Hunt. of Goodwill Hunting, all the one's best songs. I, I think I think it is his best song. I think it's a, an absolutely fucking fantastic song. I, I 
still can listen to that song uh, and unreservedly enjoy it. I think it's just a wonderful bit of writing and really brilliantly recorded and arranged mm-hmm. as well. It's quite complete. Um, I you mean, see, if you do, it's a really interesting thing you can do. See if you, I, I did it like accidentally, but I actually slots really well on either or that song. Okay, which is because something to try if you're <laughs> listening at home. Um, it, so Elliot Smith obviously lived in Portland, and so did Gus Van Sant, mm-hmm. who directed uh, Goodwill Hunting. Uh, also, I always I just loved the way the track. I think it helped the track the way it came in in the film, mm-hmm. just at that closing credits scene as the car's driving off into the distance, because the film does leave you with that strange sort of bittersweet, sort of melancholy feeling of uh, unresolved loss or mm-hmm. something. There, there's something really quite sad, not not tragic, but just softly sad and nagging. And the films, like, uh, the songs like that, it's perfectly suited. And just the way the car just drives off. And the credits roll over the footage of the car driving with the song playing. It's I think it's a a genuinely really great bit of scoring, like one of the one of the best. Um, he's done other stuff in films as well. Like obviously, we'll we'll talk about Needle in the Hay, mm-hmm. but that that was a huge breakthrough for him because that song was actually nominated for an Oscar. Um, it lost out to My Heart Will Go On I know. by Celine Dion from Titanic. I can't argue with that. That is mental. Have you seen a performance of it? It's on YouTube of him, just him playing it on stage. Oh, see, yeah, it's a cut down version. It's like two well, minutes, yeah, wasn't it? Completely wearing a, like I'm wearing a completely white suit. <laughs> I think it's really strange. Yeah, he said he said that he, he very quickly realised he didn't belong in that world of Hollywood, but it was really fun to walk in the moon for one night. Mm. It's a phrase he used. Um, yeah, he's, and he's he's got lots of other odds and saws lying about. One of the one of the next things I heard by him after that was a cover of the song Thirteen by the band Big Star. Mm-hmm. Won't you tell me what you're thinking of? Would you be an outlaw for my love? And his cover of that is. Just so, so good. It's such a well-chosen cover for his voice, for his style of playing. It's very, very delicate, very intimate rendition of that song. It's already a very delicate song anyway, but he does a very, very good job of it. Um, and those those little bitty bobby things were what I first heard, and then I started trying to engage with the albums. But I just, the albums were so hit and miss for me that I couldn't get ever get into the flow of any of the albums. So I just started... So I taking a note of the tracks that I liked and just pulling yeah. them off the albums and just sticking them on compilations of my own, as I say. Um, maybe just skim through the records. Yeah, let's do it, man. Um, Roman Candle, nineteen ninety four, his debut album. For the me, song Roman Candle's really good. I'm a Roman candle. My head is full of flames. I'm a See, I, I don't like anything on this record, I'll be honest. I think it's a really mulchy album. It's obviously that kind of eight-track, four-track, eight-track era where people were recording on the cassettes and stuff. It's very, very lo-fi, very noisy in the background. Sebado were doing a similar thing at the same time. The track Last Call was okay. Um, and the track was is it Kiwi Mad Dog. Is a sort of, it's quite an interesting, sort of almost like Ennio Morricone, the Shadows-esque sort of instrumental final tune. But mm. as a record, I just... I tried many, many times. I worked with a guy, actually. It was just two of us worked together in this shop, and he absolutely loved Elliot Smith, and he used to play these albums a lot. So I had more, I had plenty of opportunity to try and get into it, and I just always found it a real slog, especially this early stuff. 
Um, and then he followed that in 1995 when the Kill Rock started label, which mm-hmm. was super a super hip label um, with self-titled Elliot Smith. And this is where Needle in the Hay comes into play because it's the first track in that and it's mm. fucking brilliant. Brilliant song. Absolutely, Absolutely brilliant, brilliant song. Yeah. If you wonder if you've heard Needle in the Hay, you probably have if you're into indie films at all because it was in the Royal Tenenbaums in 2001, um, Wes Anderson's film. Been a brutal scene. Like a I, brilliant I, scene, oh, yeah, yeah. Like a suicide oh, attempt yeah. in the film. Probably one of the films, easily one of the film's most poignant scenes, one of Wes Anderson's most poignant scenes. It's one inter- my, yeah, I mean, it's one of my top three Wes Anderson films and it's like a yeah. really powerful part in it. Oh, it's, it's just tremendous. Yeah. It's really, really interesting because Anderson sometimes plays those kind of scenes almost like for a laugh sometimes mm. and he doesn't there he and does it's a really, really, really smart move in his Yeah, part. you're right. Um, apparently, Elliot Smith was meant to record a version of Hey Jude for that film but Wes Anderson said that they just couldn't get him to do it. He was just in such a bad way. He was already depressed and using a lot of drugs. Um you I can think totally hear him do that as well. Like he's, Beatles are a massive influence oh, for him. All, yeah, absolutely. All through, man. There's just so many Beatles references. Not to mention Beatles covers. There's, mm-hmm. there's multiple Beatles covers. That's because, which is one of my favourite songs in Abbey Road. It's like it's got the weird. I, I've, I haven't heard the cover for a long time. Because the world is round, it turns me on. Because. Um, but it's on the expanded edition of 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 this of Figure Eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's, oh, it's a really good song. Yeah, and it, it allows him to lean into that multi-tracked vocal harmony thing that he already was kind of doing anyway. Yeah, and just to show all the instrumentation. Uh, yeah, there's a track on that um, as well called "Coming Up Roses," which has like a kind of nice melody. But I, otherwise, again, the self-titled album, I really don't get a lot from it. Mm-hmm. I've tried many Same. times, but it's just quite sparse in terms of lasting hooks and things like that mm-hmm. uh, either, yeah, or. either or yeah. yep Nineteen ninety seven. is that right is that a reference it is yeah. yeah so he studied philosophy so I am um, it's yeah, he actually he did, he did philosophy and political science, so he's actually got the same degrees I do. As you, <laughs> I know. David, it's just a this could have been potent. Me. Well, I don't know. I seem happier than him. <laughs> yeah, that could be the problem. Okay, that uh, that yeah. Jurassic Park jumper you're wearing could be masking a, a heart of darkness. That is true. I know. Maybe one day I'll just flip and write a miserable album. <laughs> <laughs> Try to run off a cliff in Glasgow and just yeah. get saved by landing in a bin. Yeah, I mean, and impaled in a father son record. <laughs> <laughs> bins and bins and bins. <laughs> um, you know the cover. Uh, the, I think we mentioned this way way back, probably a year and a half ago. But the the cover picture for either or. Uh, in the full photo, uh, it's Sonic Youth standing next to him. Is it? Yeah. That's like one of those um, album covers like uh, Spiderland by Slint, mm-hmm. which was taken by Bonnie Prince Billy. I don't know if there are any others. But where there is like a another legendary artist attached, yeah. but you don't know about. Just there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's a thing that you at home can comment on. Give us more album covers that uh, involve other artists. That aren't seen. <laughs> yeah, un- the unseen hand, yeah. I was, uh, I kind of wondered if I was going to spoil anyone's nexus with that fact, but there you go. 
problem solved. No. <laughs> um, there's there's definitely a big step up in the songwriting Absolutely, for this album. Yeah. It's like the tunes themselves are way more memorable and distinct. Um, it's two years removed, right? So I mean, I guess it's if you think about it, this is right after Heat Miser are finished. You must, for me, you're kind of thinking like there must be the good songs, which were probably not going to be on a Heat Miser record. He's now got them for himself, yeah, and now he can do something with them. Yeah, and he's, he's he's concentrating on one project. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did say about how the Elliot Smith stuff unexpectedly and very quickly eclipsed the Heat Miser stuff mm-hmm. in terms of interest. Uh, and he'd only really sent that original set of recordings out as an experiment to see if there was any uptake. And he was taken aback when it when it so quickly overtook the main the main project in very commas. Um, I, I don't really necessarily think either or gets fully going though until the third track. It's Ballad of Big Nothing where I really feel the album starts to kind of come alive properly. And it's Ballad of Big Nothing is, as we're saying, one of his deceptively upbeat moments. Then it's kind of quite quickly brought back down to earth with Between the Bars, the fourth track right after it's really, really, again, intimate is probably mm-hmm. the word I'd use. Um, it's got a really, really nice chord progression in it, that song as well, that kind of Lennon McCartney school of very interesting rolling chord changes yeah. like the in-between chords which he always does like when you switch between two chords sometimes we slide to one in the middle and it's mm. like a really distinctive Beatlesy thing which they, now that I think about it not a lot of people even do that now like I've really ever picked up on that from the Beatles and he really does and he uses it a lot like anybody that does usually gets a Beatles reference yeah. <laughs> um, Between the Bars was also used in Rick and Morty oh it? yeah it was that's right two, yeah. I think which kind of sums up a lot of where his legacy has ended up in it's like this weird sad boy coolness thing. <laughs> That's interesting. I it's don't, me, I don't baby. remember when it I was know. used. Uh, I believe it was in season two, seventh episode. It's like... He's a giant pickle killing a rat and it's between the bars. <laughs> <laughs> and that's season three. Um, the Rose Parade, I think it's like one of the fan favourites of Elliot Smith. It's like a really recognisable song. The folk that are into him. Uh, I think track eight has got to be in his top five. Angelis. Angelis, yep. Angelis is just a, a really beautiful song. I can make you satisfied in everything you do. All your secret wishes could I never be coming true. Really a delicate, intimate, really carefully kind of plucked, picked song. Um, it's got a really subtle synth note that just goes through the mm. entire tune. It does, yeah. Um, I love that song, man. I think also it's one of the best examples in that first half of his career of the double vocal thing working really well. Mm. The whispery thing being just the right amount. The, t- the the takes as well being good. The two takes, you know. It's a hard thing. you ever tried to do that, man? It's a hard thing to do, double tracking your vocals. Really difficult thing to do. Uh, I did it once. Realised I couldn't do it live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gave up. Um CS as well, the twelfth track, and that's the other one that Just really stands out for me. Close to being a perfect song, I think. Say yes. Uh, 
Uh, I don't know if I would go anywhere near that far, but it's got a great harmony in it. I love the lift at the end. It's got mm. a really nice kind of vocal uh, progression up the way uh, for the last things, the last verse. Um, yeah, EXO, first album in DreamWorks, 1998. Uh, it's his biggest selling album. Uh, actually got to number 37 in the UK, which is not bad going for a guy that was on the fringes of the American indie scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sweet Adeline was like, another really well rec- uh, well-known yeah. Billy Smith song so it starts really small as well it's an interesting thing about Sweet Adeline like it starts as though the album is going to be like another sort of either or or even self-titled like very mm-hmm. kind of low production low key thing but then that that song gradually evolves into something a lot bigger yeah just I feel that when it does get big it's like everything sweeps in at once yeah It's just like it's like it's like strings coming up in an orchestra. It's like it all happens. Oh fuck! Yeah, and it's it's sort of a a little microcosm of the transition in his career, going from this very small, low key production to much bigger production, just in, within the context of that one song. And it's actually a clever choice for a first track in that sense because it does fool you a wee bit into thinking the opposite at first. He makes the same choice in Figure Eight as well. It starts off really small, mm-hmm. and then yeah. Uh, now you kind of Freudian slip earlier on. Waltz number two. It was the first song I heard by Alex Smith. Track three, mm-hmm. another top five. Yeah. Looking out on the substance still going strong. Absolutely phenomenal yeah, song. A really great so song. So beautiful. Mm-hmm. The, the, the lyrics in the song are beautiful as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I can give or take some of his words sometimes, but never going to know you now, but I'm going to love you anyhow. It's got to be one of the iconic lines that he came Just out so with. so aching, isn't it? Yeah. It's like so melancholy. I love it. Maybe Britain's covered a lot by people. A lot of people that have, a lot of bands that I know kind of, I like kind of punk bands have yeah, covered Baby Britain quite a lot. It's got that kind of jaunty Beatles mm-hmm. vibe. I, I find it a bit too whimsical. I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan of it either, to be yeah. honest. Pitsley's Pits, uh, not bad. I'm not what's missing from your life now. I could never be the puzzle pieces. Pitsley is nice. It's got Pitsley is more um, reminiscent of his earlier stuff. Yeah. It's much. It's much lower key. It's much sparser and simpler. It could have been done in a four track. You know, mm-hmm. something really easy. Um, I think Bled White. Bled White is a, good a song. really good song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a full band vibe on it. Really catchy and upbeat. Amity's a nice one. Um, yeah, it's, got I think a, it's, like, it's probably as rocky as moment. I was going it? to say it's like it's just like it's just a proper college rock nineties radio song. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're right. It's totally got you're that. Right. Like, it is harking back to kind of REM sort of like, guided you know? by voices and that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's a total mono song. <laughs> the, <laughs> the bar mono yeah. in Glasgow. <laughs> yeah, they sort of like um, what's that? Uh, what's that book? Nick? Is it Nick Horn- Hornby? Nick Hornby. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's that kind of like. Uh, high fidelity yeah high fidelity type music <laughs> smart guys indie rock music yeah, yeah. Um, oh well okay I think that's another one that's really beloved by fans mm-hmm. of him it's quite a sort of Generation X song even the sentiment you know oh well okay mm-hmm. it's like that Nirvana whatever never mind is yeah. that kind of 
indifferent sort of thing. Um, I think question mark in this album is a stinker of a tune. Yeah. Fucking terrible. Uh, yeah. Everybody cares and everybody understands as well. It doesn't really do much for me either. Yeah. It's okay. It's that a cappella thing. Looking for the next in line to love Then ignore I didn't understand as a product of him toying about with stuff like Because mm-hmm. covers mm-hmm. by the Beatles, you know, obviously because he's he's like, oh, I, I quite like this a cappella multi-tracked harmony thing. He's, again, no way he could do it live, mm-hmm. so it's purely a recording thing. A little indulgence in the studio. And then there's figure eight, obviously, That's and then after figure eight, as you mentioned, so he died in the midst of writing and recording an album called From a Basement on a Hill. He'd actually, there'd been a few aborted albums mm. through his career. There were times, I think it was before Figure Eight. After, just after Figure Eight? No, no, just a, cu- a couple of years before as well, though he'd started on something that didn't manifest either because he he wasn't in a good frame of mind and they had to abandon the recording sessions at the time. But yeah, so this was a posthumous work and it, it's a lot noisier and darker. He'd actually, I don't know if you noticed it but I was reading a couple of interviews as well and he'd started experimenting with this kind of like noise project, he'd been messing about with kind of lo-fi electronics mm-hmm. um, with his girlfriend at the time and they'd started recording these little kind of basic demos and tapes of this thing they were trying to transition into which was going to be much more of an experimental project and I think this, the noisiness of this album, there's a lot going on in this album that's quite um, what's the word, it's not is musical it's a lot more atmospheric mm-hmm. in a sort of dissonant way and it's not something that's really particularly typical of his other work and I think that's maybe down to his experimentations with that other potential side project that never had time to happen it, it, it is quite a dark album though tonally it's I, very messy but I think that's just yeah, through circumstance I mean, more than anything yeah, yeah you can only work with what you've got mm-hmm. I mean Don't Go Down is okay Um, the fifth track Strung Out Again is very Paul McCartney yeah um, Pretty Ugly Before was one that he's, he'd been kicking around for a long time and his life set yeah I mean I don't like that one I'll be honest but if Fun Farewell I don't think it's great either um, Twilight was probably the nicest one on that record for me Another one that's quite intimate, but I, I, I'd have to say I don't, I don't think that's a, a great collection. Yeah, I haven't spent a lot of time on this record. There's just a couple of songs that I like. I do like Coast to Coast. There's something about King's Crossing that I like, but the vocals really put me off it. Mm-hmm. I like, I like the composition of it because it just starts off with the vocal and then it suddenly becomes really noisy. And a bit like kind of chaotic, which I quite like. But yeah, that's think... that's exactly what he was seemed to be fucking about with at this yeah. point. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what would have happened mm. if he'd completed it because it was supposed to be a double album. Can um, you imagine a double album? That's that right, album? Yeah, yeah, no, Jesus, it'd be like, fucking hard. <laughs> I mean, I don't think anybody should ever make double albums, but you know, it would have been interesting to see what happened because it might have 
had some sort of f- fuller narrative. But yeah, but it could just have been horribly flabby and overindulgent. Well, yeah. yeah it, quite, quite easily. Because is, I will say, I think figure eight is over long. I would say that too. And I've that actually got a, that in my notes. It's a single CD. That, yeah. So, I mean, just going into figure eight, Mark, it's, it's your choice. So you kick us off. Yeah. So, I mean, Son of, Son of Sam is like Elliot going full Beatles. Just like he's just went fuck it, I'm doing, I'm doing the whole lot. Why not? Um, I, mean, I think it's in his top five again. Yeah, so it was it's probably one of really, his best songs. Really I would say um, yeah. the band vocals are stunning on it. It's um, really bouncy, isn't it? Yeah, it's like the, such a happy way. To, yeah. to, to kick off. It's kind of dreamy. Uh, you know, I mean, um, he says this whole album feels dreamy. Although yeah. I do think that's possibly a lot drugs. to do with his drugs. <laughs> I'd imagine a lot of his like last five years is pretty dreamy. I think the phrase he used was fragmented and dreamy. And I'm like, yes, that's probably a fair description. Yeah, so I've run here. Um, when it gets to it's the maximum Beatles vibe. This whole record when he brings the Hammond organ in, which is like proper late mm-hmm. late sixties Beatles. Um, but I've also written it's probably one of his best songs. The bridge breakdown bit is really, really cool. Um, when he starts, it starts to go a bit alt-rock, which I quite liked. Um, but the whole composition of this song, I really, really love. Well, this, this really album smart. was partly recorded in Abbey Road as well, yeah. which is clearly a nod to mm. that anyway. Mm. This song in particular benefits for that much cleaner, bigger production and the, the more complicated arrangements, the things like the organ, mm-hmm. taking more time to, to choose extra instruments to fill frequencies. It is just overall a much lusher sound that he gets. Um, I noticed there was some interesting reaction to it. Like Enemy in the AV Club had described this as his best record. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas on the flip of that, I think like a Pitchfork and All Music were a bit critical of it. I don't know. Saying, not saying it was bad, but saying that it fell short of the, the previous two um, and I think CMJ had said at the time and I had noted as we've noted that it was curiously upbeat and very atypical of him as an artist and there are certain moments when you read the accounts of people towards the end of his life where they're like he seemed like he was getting so much better like even his girlfriend at the mm-hmm. time was saying like he seemed like he was getting into good health and this album if you were unaware of any other you know, interviews and, and and evidence. Just a fan, and you heard this, you'd be like, "Oh man, it sounds like Elliot Smith's fucking sorting shit out." It seems mm. like he's in a good place when you hear this come in because it's it's cheerful. Yeah, it's just cheerful. Um, Would you think, Dave? Uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised by it when I I've just dipped in and out of Elliot Smith previously, and now you sort of for these podcasts you go in and you do the the full contextual deep dive. Deep dive. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, this is interesting. I just hadn't expected this album to be as upbeat as it was. I also, I can, I can kind of understand where the slightly more critical reviews come from in terms of, I don't think it, it's not big enough to be a big pop record. Mm-hmm. Like the production, yeah, the production is a step forward. But like, for me, if I go back and I want to listen to Elliot Smith, which is rarely, but you know what? He sounds fucking good in the soundtrack for an indie film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not R.E.M. It's not as big as that. Yeah, that's exactly. That's what it needs to like, be. It's yeah. like, to me, he works best when he is that scuzzy, you know, four track in a bedroom sort of guy. I can see what he's doing and there's a lot of really interesting things happening in here. But that's why, that's why I'm kind of wondering what could have happened uh, with the big you know double record although to be honest it doesn't sound like it was going to be as good as it could have been yeah but it's like the uh, the production just doesn't glimmer the guitars are you know obviously he's got a famously thin voice but 
like, I don't think that's necessarily the fault. It's like the instruments, he's got more instruments and he's got little lines and stuff like that, but they still don't feel grand, mm. you know. I think there's maybe four or five points in the album where it feels quite grand to me, but I think it does fall a little bit in between the cushions, mm. if you will. Mm. It, it just gets a little bit lost. It's not quite... Cause but it is a very interesting album. A lot of reviews were using the phrase power pop. And I think by our standards, and I mean like multiple reviews say yeah, that so same thing. Yeah, it's a weird thing you are like, like Weezer and things like that, you know. Yeah, and well, it's like, well to me it's like more like stuff like Ben Folds yeah. or uh, like Cowboy Mouth or like example. that sort of American yeah. stuff. And like they were just like at home in making big fucking positive pop vibes because like that's what they were born to do. See, I think and then this Sam. stuff is like, I'm still a quiet boy, but I'll do this. Fuck it. Ben Folds is an interesting shout though, because I think Son of Sam gets close to Ben Folds territory, mm-hmm. very close to Ben Folds territory, but he doesn't. He doesn't maintain that. He just he manages to hit on that a few times during the record. Yeah, but I think Ben Folds then went on to cover a few. Did he? Uh, Elliot Smith songs, yeah, mm-hmm. but um, I mean, like get, reciprocal in their admiration. I think. Um, I you think can see he's reaching for power pop because I think. I do get I do get a bit of a Rivers Como vibe from his vocal sometimes. Only occasionally though, only only in certain parts. It's not not like he's like ear for a hook, yeah. maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. when he's at his hookiest. Um one of the big missteps I think in this album is that I I, I do not understand the sequencing because it drags yeah. down the quality immediately. He does it a lot. He has like a big song, little song. Yeah, song, this is it's, song. It's, we're talking about the album being sli- over long, sixteen tracks. This is cut, cut this fucking song. Definitely. I really don't understand. Because it could have gone into Junk One Trader. Which would have been a great, which been a great song because it's another one. It's a big difference from the earlier work. Much bigger. It's got like a bell in the background of it and mm-hmm. stuff. You know, like, like an actual big bell ringing through it. It's got slide guitar in it. Um, it's less subtle in the writing, but all the better for it. You know, it's it's much more joyous and indulgent and yeah. engages with bigger kind of pop tendencies. So it's just so baffling that they sandwiched it between that and again, number four, everything reminds me of heart. I'm afraid I just think it's sort of like average old stuff from yeah. his earlier records. I'd agree. I think there's, I mean, don't get me wrong, and everything reminds me of her, I think there's some really cool production choices on it, like the, the reverb on the vocal on the acoustic guitar are really, really nice, and the, the, like, there's one vocal pan to the left and one to the right, and then sometimes the lead guitar will like, do, like, go in stereo imaging, and then it'll come focus right in the middle, which is really, really smart. But the song itself is... Um, it just doesn't really land and I think it's supposed to be a companion piece to everything means nothing to me which is a lot more dreamy it's like a different a totally different texture altogether a far better song yeah, it? it's like yeah. It, it feels like 
fuck, why did he just do that thing in the last song when he's just doing like his old kind of vibes when he could actually do something which is quite sonically different and yeah. interesting for him? It, it just really, do- tracks two and four, it just really doesn't need them, uh, I feel. Uh, like track five, like Say Everything Means Nothing, starts really small again but just gets bigger and bigger and has that great device where he just keeps repeating that everything means nothing to me motif and it builds and builds and builds as like a vocal loop and it's really nice, it's really different, it's something that he's not done before and uh, Interesting. The kind of thing you could only really do on a major label, right? Yeah, I mean, so is that. I mean, well, it's not so is that panning. Sorry, that's that's not strictly true because we live in a day of home recording now. But this mm. wasn't the days of home recording. But you can experiment a lot more, and the engineers are more inclined to tell you why don't you fuck about with the panning and this, and you know, mm-hmm. when you're not working on a four track, track six, LA. So it's ostensibly an upbeat and quite rocky tune, but there is a very sinister undertone to this song yeah. where he keeps talking about last night, I almost threw it all away, and it mm-hmm. just, for something that's kind of quite buoyant, it, it has a, a strangely unnerving premise, I Definitely, feel. Definitely, yeah. yeah. I'm, it, I'm not a mad fan of the song in general, actually. I don't, I don't mind it. It's fine on the album, and it's nice and energetic, but just melody-wise, it doesn't really grab me. But I was... I like, uh, this is one that like grabbed me. To begin with, this track. I thought it was a bit cheesy, to be honest. Uh, like a bit, yeah. coll- a bit college rocky. I don't know. I kind of, I was quite happy with that vibe on it for some reason. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I think I like. I agree with Dave. I think um, the, the thing that frustrates me about this song a little bit though is like the verse is kind of meandering, mm-hmm. and when the vocal comes in, like with that the L A bit when it goes up like an octave, mm-hmm. it's lovely. It's got the Beatles end, the Beatles vocal at the end as yeah. well, which is pretty cool. I think it's it's a, an interesting sort of case study in what I feel is that kind of unnerving juxtaposition uh, or contrast between a kind of superficially cheerful album with a nice bright cover and, and quite smile. upbeat songs and suicide in the, in the lyrics. But I mean, mm. not suicide in a flippant way, but a guy who did commit suicide and had <laughs> mo- attempted it multiple times, like mm. a sincere, earnest sadness in, in what's been sung about. It's, it's, it's odd. It's unnerving. Uh, and that, that's, yeah, that song really kind of encapsulates that for me. Um, in the Lost and Found is a sort of playful, kind of carnivalesque sort of tune. Again, yeah. has a very Beatlesy chorus in it. Proper Americana vibe with the honky tonk piano. I didn't like this at I, all. I didn't like it either. Yeah. I, I, I get the I get the Beatlesy bit in it, but the actual instrumentation. When it goes out in the bridge and the strings and stuff come in, it is very Beatlesy. It's got the same kind of bass breaks as you get in something like Abbey Road, and uh, yeah, it's or the White Album even. But yeah, it's just wait. The song's way too long, and it doesn't need to. It doesn't really need to be here. I, I appreciate what he's trying to do. Like he's tried to do something different again, which is cool, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's taking another chance, and it's not paid off for him. But you know, fair enough for doing See, it. It's man. crossing the line as well between 
upbeat and positive to just inane. Yeah, you know? maybe. I th- see, the Beatles are really, really um, overrated. <laughs> really guilty of doing that as well, though. Like of of like writing some really good songs and flip putting something about a name. Oh man, the Beatles are them. fucking hard um, listening, man. Because they do have some great fucking music, but oh my god, a lot of shite as well. Yeah, they did. Um, and this is kind of I see he's taking the bad the the bad influence from the Beatles on this particular yeah, thing, this yeah. particular song. Um, track eight, stupidity tries. He, he loves a fucking waltz beat. This Elliot, by the oh, way, yeah, he loves does. a three three. It's song in the album. Really, it mm. works well in this one. Yeah, it builds really nicely. It's got a really, really teenage fan club feel. If you've ever listened to teenage fan club, this song for me is the closest he got to them, and that's that's not a bad thing. I think it's quite popular with fans as well. Mm. It's a bit more Beach Boys this song than it is. Well, again, music. that's that's kind of a fanny's thing. It's just mm. a kind of cheerful, buoyant mm. sort of multi-vocally positivity. The strings are what make it for me. When the strings come in and the and the chorus, that's what really kind of gets to me. And I just enjoy dynamics and the refrain at the end with the big guitars and the ooze and stuff. Just, yeah, love it, love it. What about Easy Way Out? No, I think Easy Way Out's one of Elliot Smith's best songs. I think it's because it's a very, very sincere and unvarnished bit of music. It's really simple, but it's not simple in the way that some of the early stuff was just bland. Mm-hmm. And it's it's simple, but is just I don't think it could have been been performed better. Yeah. I love the the delivery in it. He didn't mm-hmm. let anyone overarrange it or try and build it up into this huge band number or. Equally, he didn't try and undersell it. It's just, I think it's a really, really brilliantly captured bit of music. It's got some nice subtle orchestra, orchestral elements as the, well. The cello thing really in it. Well. I, think, yeah. I think it's the cello in it. It's just it's brilliant. It's just enough. It reminded me of Cat Stevens for some reason. So I believe he was a fan. Who I believe, Yusuf Islam, sorry, I believe he was a fan. I mean, you would um, imagine. So it's yeah. one of the standout sort of singer-songwriter folks for mm-hmm. the 70s, isn't it? So um, would Ma- wouldn't Mama be proud? Of the great pretender Such a fucking terrible name. Starts yeah. so naff. It does have a pretty decent chorus. In yeah, it's nice. Uh, the cool horn bits as well. And the organ, the organ sounds nice now, but it's proper MOR. Yeah, proper fucking yeah. like. Yeah. Uh, track eleven, color bars. You're just some dude with a stilted attitude that you learn from TV. You'll undo, but I'll be connecting everything. I kind of felt it was a bit of a nothing to be honest Yeah well see This is the thing it's, I would say the vast majority of this song Is just Whatever It's fine But there is a really really nice bit At about a minute 30 With these kind of piano chords Like down the register uh, it's just a very, very, very nice bit, and I wish this song had had a lot more of that in it, because it's worth listening to the song to get to that bit. But it, it is a case of, oh come on, hurry up, get to that bit. 
Um, it's got a much older feel as well. I think it's like it sounds like something that came through like his either or period to me. Um, yeah. Now, track twelve, big one. This is, I think, this is probably the first tune I heard after those kind of bits and bobs tunes. Mm-hmm. Happiness slash the Gondola Man, as it's sort of fully titled. Yeah. Um, this is a classic Elliott Smith tune. It's a really, really nice, uncomplicated bit of very tuneful singer-songwriter stuff. Yeah. Arranged and captured by a producer who's clearly wanting to sort of, you know, just add in little bits of other stuff. He's, I think he's taken a fair bit of production advice during the recording of this because I, I love it. I love it. it really, th- this was what made me go and start investigating the albums properly. Yeah, I think this song's been synced on a bunch of TV shows. It's like classic, like fucking teen drama tune. Um, but I like it a lot, man. It's one of my favourite songs. I actually think it could probably be the last song on the record if you yeah. take away the gondola, yeah, man. Especially because of the ending. Mm-hmm. The, end, the way that that vocal line starts to sort of um, rondo, mm-hmm. you know, where like, mm-hmm. they all start to overlap over each other. It's a, it would have been a brilliant ending, you're right. Yeah. Uh, Pretty Mary Kay. Maximum Beatles vibes. Get that the fuck off this record. Yeah. Really. Um, it is Maximum Beatles vibes yeah. and it needs to piss off. I think the melody is really nice, but everything else around it doesn't really work for me. I mean, the fucking na- the name alone is just yeah. too much. Um, I better be quiet now. Another one I think should just have been cut. Uh, yeah. really bland it's, it's a much older style L.A. Smith tune and it, it it just doesn't really bring anything to it that I can see I mean it's and that's four tunes that could have been left off and I think if this had been a 12 track album you'd be talking about a very very strong record mm-hmm. but the, by this point the running time is starting to become a wee bit of a chore uh, and Can't Make a Sound is actually a really nice song it, it gets really quite lofty at the end mm-hmm. as well it builds up in a really nice way Yeah, it does. It doesn't seem like it's going there, but it, it does, and it does so in a manner that makes sense as well. It's not like it's. It doesn't sound like it's just tacked on. And I, I, this would have been better served being earlier or not having so much filler before it in the form of at least fortunes that mm-hmm. I don't think are really helping. Um, and then you know, I guess fittingly, the track by which was his last release while still alive. This dreamy little piano outro again I think it, it nicely depicts his notions that this was fragmented and dreamy as an album because it's a very fragmented dreamy little song Yeah, it's actually quite in the context I'd never really listened to that what's, what's, what seems like a throwaway track 1 minute 50 or something is I'd never really listened to it thinking about what happened to him and there's something really sad about it that's just this final song by this really 
so it sounds like it's been recorded at the opposite side of a room and I'd honestly like it, it kind of mm. struck a chord to me not a chord that I necessarily think was meant to be struck because I'm sure he didn't yeah, know no, but it's a retrospective yeah, sort of it's, it's acquired a significance and a kind of gravitas that I hadn't really paid attention to mm. so whilst it's a kind of it is still technically a kind of throwaway little bit of music I think in context it's actually really quite sad mm-hmm. um, as a as a, as a sign off yeah and as that, that dreaminess does kind of feel as though you're waking up as well mm-hmm. you know or, um, or don't go to sleep or, or yeah or that too um, so yeah um, Dave you were very quiet yeah I mean this was going to be Dave's had two weeks at Indie Rock <laughs> yeah pretty much um, just I, th- I think this is a classic record that if you got into it when you were you know of age mm-hmm. then it would hold a really powerful, or the artist would hold a powerful part of in your life. But I missed him, and I missed it. And going back to it, I can see how every song could fit into a really nice bit of One Tree Hill mm-hmm. or a Zach Braff movie. You take yeah. that back. Well, Zach Braff, I don't mind quite as much. But you know, for me, I'm just—I suppose he was one of the first miserable white American men. Yeah, he definitely wasn't one of the first. Well, no, but you know what I mean, like. <laughs> Uh, I've never liked uh, Bright Eyes or Death Cab or any of yeah. these guys, mm. and he was like the archetype for, for he a was, lot of them. I mean, yeah. he, I mean, I'll give you Bright Eyes. I think he was more miserable than Death Cab, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, but I think they and obviously much more the real deal as well. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I, no, the, the the album was interesting. Uh, it was definitely fifteen minutes too long. It could have been mm. eleven or twelve tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it could have been a lot sharper. Um, I I like that he was trying to do something a bit more upbeat with it. Um, I think if I was going to go back and l- listen to an Elliot Smith record, it would probably be either or, mm-hmm. um, just because I want to fully immerse myself in one man's grainy misery <laughs> yeah. rather than him attempting to be a, a little bit more upbeat. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that is just the the indie sort of credible favourite, if you know what I mean. That is yeah, the, that's and that's the, fine. That I mean, we don't, need, album, we, don't need to go, you know? we don't need to go into that-ness. I mean, I think Elliot Smith is maybe an unsung artist overall because he never... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, considering He's how... He's an artist, um, artist as well. So yeah, how immensely influential he was. Um... And I think oh, it would have been his fiftieth birthday this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was um, a there was a concert, and there was mm-hmm. a that's going to be a wee bit of my nexus. Yeah, but like just some, I think there's been like a few articles and people speaking to artists, and it's just like everybody who is everybody who plays um, slightly downbeat indie rock now cites him as a major influence. Even like fucking Louis Theroux, etc. You know, come along and say. He's an underrated artist. <laughs> so, Louis Theroux, you say, David. I said Louis Theroux. Oh, my God. <laughs> Have I <laughs> thrown forward to a nexus? Um, yeah, no, interesting record. I mean, I'm happy to for it to go in because it was an underrated at the time and also probably still now artist who's been incredibly influential and he was trying new things. Mm. Um, I would say... EXO was his biggest selling album. I mean, I mean, in the big scheme of things, it was not a big selling album. EXO was his biggest selling album, so it gets a bit of recognition that way. Either or is the Indie Darling album. The self-titled one in Roman Candle are not great records. Mm-hmm. This is a very good record, but 
would have been a great record if it had been Sans four tracks, I think. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna say yes because it could probably do a little bit more attention. And I do think there's something really perversely compelling about somebody so close to the edge writing music that was trying so hard to be optimistic, almost like he was trying to make himself smile. You know, mm-hmm. there's something weird about that. Yeah, there's yeah, something yeah. weird about that effect of like pushing the corners of your mouth up to try and pretend you're happy. Well, it goes back to the Joker exactly. that we've been talking <laughs> yeah. about. Yeah, I think definitely. that's kind of, there's a sense of that going on. And yeah. when you really consider the full context, there's something just a little bit makes me uneasy about this album, but it kind of adds to it. Sadly, adds an early adds an early of sadness to it as well, doesn't it? Mm. Like, yeah, it does. Just trying to be like, if you're trying to make yourself. Let's happen, call it yeah. poignancy. Yeah. Let's not call it sadness, because okay. then it's just you know it's getting dark outside. The winter's <laughs> coming. Yeah, it's true. So I guess we all agree that this record should go into the sography. So going for as you always do. Should we do an Nexus? Dave's been going on about it, so we might as well. Who's first? This is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store this for us? Should do an Nexus. Uh, so Mark was first. Yep. We're um, we're going to connect it to Mowgli, Mowgli from, from the Jungle, Jungle Book, which and was that was suggested choice. by Mark. By me, Mister <laughs> Mark Freezer. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Glasgow, Scotland, <laughs> South Side. All right, so get there. Let's go. Um, Elliot Smith was found dead in his girlfriend Jennifer Sheba's apartment. Did you know that? <laughs> I'd heard We've oh, discussed that Yeah, Good start Good start um, Rivers from Weezer Was actually friends With Jennifer Chiba And there's a song On uh, Make Believe Called The Other Way Which he wrote about Do you uh, remember When we did the Weezer yeah. Nexus And I did this The Other Way I was like, like <laughs> I, I went I got to Weezer Via Jennifer Chiba Via this song uh, Well I've actually got I'm actually going to talk a different way um, Cause I need to Cause I need to Because fucking, fucking. Um, So yeah Basically that song's about As we know It's about Rivers question or what his motivations for trying to comfort her. Um, Weezer have done a lot of things over the years, but they've also contributed two songs to two Disney soundtracks. Did you know that? Mm. <laughs> one is uh, for Frozen Two, which is coming out this year, and one was for Cars Two, where they did, they did a cover of the Cars song. You might think, no, it's okay, it's okay. Um, uh, Rivers also wrote a song called Walt Disney. Um, I went and saw it on like a second solo, a second kind of compilation solo release. Who's that about? Um, it's not about Walt uh, Disney. R- um, Robbie Burns. <laughs> it's basically about him. Like, but what Walt Disney? Do you know for a fact that it's the Walt Disney? <laughs> <laughs> um, apparently that song's about like, he was hating being on tour so much, he just felt completely frozen in, in time. Sorry, yeah, uh, that's and, not actually true. By the way, Walt Disney was not cryogenic. I know, I know, but that, that was the the urban myth in the early yeah. nineties, wasn't it? So, um, anyway, Cars Two, which is the song they have, uh, which is a re- one of the soundtracks they've got a song on, um, was a sequel to the film Cars, and the film Cars was a cameo by Sully from Monsters Inc., um, who is voiced by John Goodman. And John Goodman voiced Baloo in the 2003 film The Jungle Book 2, the main character of which is Mowgli. <laughs> Jungle Book 2, wow. <laughs> we went down the 
The classy right there. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly no danger that either of us were going to do that. Yep. <laughs> uh, all right, so um, Elliot Smith worked with a man called Tom Rothrock, uh-huh. uh, who is a record producer, and I don't know what album he worked on, but he uh, did the soundtrack to Goodwill Hunting, so I think that's how he was involved at some point. I mean, it doesn't matter, he's connected to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Tom Rothrock has done and produced albums by a lot of big folk. Badly Drawn Boy, uh, Gwen Stefani, Motorhead, Stevie Nicks, uh, and James Blunt, in fact. Yes. Uh, James Blunt. Oh, God. I just, I remember the summer. Potter Merchant. He's a Potter Merchant. He is. Oh, look at him on Twitter. He's hilarious. Oh, he's all Potter. He's like, this Capaldi, but posh. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Anyway, uh, James Blunt, uh, before he became a successful uh, singer, was a successful uh, killer in the army. Uh, He was in the... Was he not a captain? He was in the lifeguards, part of the household cavalry regiment. And then ended he used up to be a tank driver, did he know? Yeah, he ended up um going in and targeting the Serbian forces as part of the NATO bombing campaign. And there was even a point where his uh his group of soldiers were told by the Americans to go in on a, a newly Russian controlled town and his commander said, No, if you do that you will we're going to war with Russia <laughs> and so they disobeyed the Americans' orders and then we didn't have World War Three, so that was handy. But anyway, um, who'd have thought James Blunt prevented World War Three? Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, story for the ages of that. that as well. Uh, he he, of course, trained at the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst, which is where the great and good of our uh, our aristocratic uh, superiors come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, other alumni of uh, Sandhurst, so we could say alumni, <laughs> <laughs> uh, include uh, Katie Hopkins. Wow. Yes, truly, truly a uh, prestigious establishment. Uh, Ian Fleming, but he did not complete his course, so I'm not going to complete my link. I'm going to have to go one further because David Niven also uh, oh. was at uh, Sandhurst. David Niven, of course, was the first person to portray James Bond in the satire Casino Royale. Yeah, that's true. And he did so before Dr. No mm-hmm. featuring Sean Connery. Sean Connery, who, of course... Famous wife beater. Famous Scottish independence <laughs> advocate. Uh, Sean Connery, who, obviously, James Bond, blah, 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 also appeared in The Man Who Would Be King, along with Michael Caine. The Man Who Would Be King, which was the 1975 version of Rudyard Kipling's uh, best-selling novel, which uh, was uh, written by Rudyard Kipling. <laughs> <laughs> who also wrote... Master of Cakes. The Jungle Book, featuring Mowgli. <laughs> <laughs> All right, nice one, David. Okay, well, uh, Elliot Smith this year, uh, 2019, NME asked a bunch of celebrities to nominate their favourite Elliot Smith tracks to celebrate his 50th birthday, as you mentioned earlier on. And uh, Louis Theroux, the documentarian, uh, picked the song Independence Day. Louis Theroux has quite famously spent time around the now deceased Mr. Jimmy Savile. Oh God! Yeah, it hadn't been dark enough. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Yeah, by the way, we're just we're just uh, at the cusp. Uh, he'd been around Jimmy Savile, um, including part of which was filmed at Jimmy Savile's house in Glencoe, which I now think sports a rather fantastic bit of graffiti permanently on the side of it. 
they've been trying to sell that building for a long time. Yeah. And it is literally, it's in one of the most oh, beautiful yeah. places of all time, but I mean, you're probably not going to live yeah. there, are you? Because you don't want to know what we really struggle. Interestingly, John Lydon, Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, was banned from the BBC in 1978 uh, after he said during an interview uh, that he liked to murder Jimmy Savile uh, because, quote, he's into all sorts of sick shit we're not allowed to talk about, which was, well, John Lydon's not said much sensible since, but uh, that was definitely on on point then. Curiously, John Lydon, or Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, uh, fellow Sex Pistols Sid Vicious, shortly after Sid Vicious was arrested for the murder of Nancy Spungen, uh, his legal bills were mysteriously picked up by somebody who at first it was not apparent who was the benefactor, and it turned out to be Mick Jagger. Uh, Mick Jagger paid those legal bills. Uh, in 1972, the same Mick Jagger and his wife, Bianca Jagger, were photographed by a 70-year-old German photographer. Uh, little known uh, Lenny Riefenstahl Known well Yep uh, By the way Lenny Riefenstahl lived to 101 years old Holy shit um, Lenny Riefenstahl is the director a Very technically gifted Director <laughs> Who directed the film Triumph of the Will The Nazi propaganda movie uh, Under the guidance of Goebbels And in 1938 That same Lenny Riefenstahl made a trip to America to promote her film Olympia and was the guest of Walt Disney. Controversially, Walt took a fair bit of slack for that. Some people say it was because they were apparently, Disney were owed some like 120,000 marks at the time for some project and he was trying to negotiate it back. Either way, it wasn't good optics uh, if we can give him the benefit of the doubt. For the man who was a famous (laughs) anti-Semite. You know, it's interesting, there's a lot of there's a lot of rumours about Walt Disney, but there's not really much evidence that Walt Disney was an anti-Semite. Really? No, there's really not. Like I went in a I went in a pretty deep dive into Walt Disney actually, because I have a lot of I had a lot of presuppositions about the guy as well. And really going through it, there's some things. I mean, he wouldn't let women animate in his studio, which was clearly reprehensible. Um, but a, a lot of the things attributed to him are are not don't seem to be true. But no. I mean, he did host Lenny Riefenstahl in 1938. People knew what was going on mm-hmm. uh, in, in Eastern yeah. Europe in yeah. the late thirties. Walt Disney, by the way, kind of helped kill his own mum. This is true. Yeah, I heard about that. Tell me more. Walt Disney uh, arranged for, I think it was engineers who worked for Disney, to try and fix his mum and dad's, what would you call it, a a boiler uh, furnace in their house on the cheap. And the the job wasn't done properly. And there was a a slow but massive gas leak in the house while they were there. And they had to be dragged out, barely conscious. And his dad recovered, but his mum died. And that was kind of because he tried to... Cut corners. Oh, um, but yeah, Walt just uh, Walt Disney. Walt Disney. Walt Disney. <laughs> um, yeah, he makes different. The head of the studio that directed uh, that made Jungle Book, one of the many films that he didn't actually animate on, but took credit for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jungle Book featured Mowgli. Great. Yay. Well, thanks very much. That's been. I hope uh, that's not been too miserable for mm-hmm. you. I think we were pretty upbeat, actually. Yeah, I think we were too. Talk avoided about- terrorism. Yeah, yeah totally. All I talked about was the Holocaust and. Murdering your parents and pedophiles, and pedophiles. yeah, yeah, just another day at the office. <laughs> uh, so go and vote on facebook.com slash unsung pod. Uh, and next week, we're going to be really upbeat, very oh, different. Hell. I've heard rumors. What is next week, David? Uh, Maria Takuchi, uh, with Variety, her 1984 record, 
um, it's this a is, Japanese pop act, right? Yeah, it's basically it's an excuse for us to go into Japanese city pop uh, and look at albums and artists and genres that have been rediscovered after years of laying dormant. For after the years of trying to forget them. I think in some ways this is Dave paying Chris back for Interpol. <laughs> yep. He didn't hate Interpol as much as you hate Interpol. Oh, he didn't say on the podcast, mate. But it's fine. I think he just knows his audience, Mark. Um, okay, uh, and the Nexus is going to be? It's chosen by Federico Lubliani. And it is Richard Benson. Richard Benson, fucking hell, that mad Italian bastard. He's, man. (laughs) (laughs) I I live with an Italian flatmate who, so I'm guessing that all Italians must be into this guy because my flatmate- He's not released that much music. No, (laughs) my flatmate has has literally inundated me with a YouTube, what's what's the phrase? like Cornucopia? Yeah, binge (laughs) of his fucking maddest shit. He is wild. That's going to be interesting. I was on his website today. Holy shit. Yeah. The guy's fucking terrifying. I've I've got some anecdotes, so I'm going to keep them until we actually do the Nexus. It's going to be like fucking gone for fucking my year to get you to do Richard Benson's going to... Cool. That's going to be hard. Powerful. Thanks, fun. Okay, so before (laughs) you go, though, we have... Uh, it's been a while since we did our last live podcast, and we have a very special number of We've show. Coming got up. a big birthday stroke anniversary stroke celebration. Yeah, we're up. like one of those people that get two birthdays because our hundredth episode is going to arrive just before our second. birthday Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're like the queen. Uh, we get our official birthday and our uh, non-official birthday. So yeah, our we're going to be celebrating our hundredth podcast, hundredth episode, um, and we're going to be recording that live. Uh, we can announce that it is going to be at the Flying Duck in Glasgow. In Glasgow on th- Sunday, the twenty fourth of November. Yep, we'll him. give you information on the specific times now. It will be in the evening of Sunday, the twenty fourth of November. And Mark, would you care to tell us what you're finally getting to pull the trigger on? Oh, smug get. <laughs> yeah. So as our previous live efforts have been, it will be a mixtape where we will each bring an album from a specific scene or genre. And Mark has chosen. I have not. I has been decided that I will do pop punk over the pop punk mixtape finally, and then after that, I'm just going to vanish and up on the smoke. <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as the podcast recording's finished, I'm just going to yeah, circle it. Imagine, I, imagine you don't win it though. Oh, well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I don't think I will because I'm going to pick something pretty obscure that no one's going to have heard of. But, oh, well. um, I mean, you're just doing, happy that doing a mixtape on pop punk is just like doing every third episode that Mark chooses. Like, yeah, like, uh, <laughs> at least I get reveling at this thing. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Okay, so we'll, we'll release more details on that, including maybe teasing what the, the records are going to be. And obviously we do a bit of preamble on the history of pop punk, which I'm sure Mark will thoroughly enjoy uh, as homework. So, yeah, um, 24th of November, put that in your diaries. We hope you'll be there. Maybe um, we could uh, even play a couple of pop punk classics at the show. Oh, can we? Can uh, we no, let's not, do, let's not do that. Um, tw- yeah, so 24th of November. That's the one. Um, and we'll announce times and prices and stuff soon um, but please come along it will be a lot of fun and Thanks you can buy some listening. beer I can't wait for one lovely <laughs> okay thanks bye <laughs>